0: Donna reminded us for the past three weeks we've been really celebrating the first two chapters of Genesis. As we've thought about the identity that God created for us. Particularly what it means to be created in the image of God. How that plays out into human identity. We said that because we've been created in the image of God, we've been created as worshippers to know him. We've been created to enjoy communities in which the image of God is reflected back to us and affirmed in us. And that we're also created to be fruitful partners in mission with God. But this morning, our topic is uh, a little different. It's still concerned with identity, but it's concerned with the loss of that identity. What happens when we lose sight of who we truly are? About 20 years ago, there was a kind of an upstart movie that gained a lot of attention by a director named Christopher Nolan, who, after this film, went on to become um, quite prolific, uh, quite well-known in Hollywood. Uh, but the movie was entitled Memento. And it told the story of of an individual, a man who had suffered a violent attack that ended up taking the life of his wife, uh, and it left him with an unusual form of memory loss. Whereby, from that point forward, he could no longer develop new memories. He couldn't form any new memories. And also, his short-term memory was constantly reset every 15 or 20 minutes. And so what you have is is a human being who is sort of profoundly confused about what took place, who he is. And in order to cope with that dilemma, that reality, uh, you see in the film he collects a series of notes that he he writes for himself that, that tell him about what's happened. He takes photographs of particular things. There are even tattoos he uses to, to trigger these memories of who he is, what he's become. And above all else, he's trying to answer the question, what happened to me? And he's, he's trying to make his way back in memory uh, to that time of, of loss, that, that attack. The film is unusual, and part of what made it interesting is that it plays out in a kind of reverse chronology. Right, where the, the film opens with, with the individual in a hotel room, he wakes up and he doesn't know who he is. And you follow his, his process back to, to find that history, to find his past, to find the identity that's been lost. For the past three weeks, we've been expositing from Genesis 1 and 2 the story of our identities. How we were formed and made in the image of likeness and likeness of God. And how that that identity was given to us. It was created by God as a profound gift. And before we did anything, it was there in the beginning. We know that this is true. We, We can receive that truth from Genesis 1 and 2. But I think when we stop and we compare what we see in those chapters with, with the reality you and I woke up to this morning, right, with the lives that we are, in fact, actually living, we might feel a bit like the protagonist in that film, Memento. Right, there's, a, there's a disconnect between where we are now and what we read about back in the garden. We know that somewhere along the way, some incident, some encounter, some attack has clouded and confused our sense of who we are. We're not always sure of what's most true about ourselves. We're not always certain what it is that gives us value. We're not always sure that there's even a safe place to be that person, that identity. We know, we sense, that something has been lost. Today, as we open up to Genesis chapter 3, we too are going to try to trace our way back and ask and answer the question, what happened to us? What's taken place that's caused us to lose a significant part of the identity God has created for us? As we open up to Genesis three, then let me pray for us and ask the, the Scripture to be able to speak clearly to our hearts and minds. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate your Word, Lord. Its conviction, its clarity, Lord. Its history of of who we are in deep ways. People who have lost something precious. Lord, I pray for the, the honesty uh, to face those things in our own lives, to apply them to our own lives today. May the words of my mouth as I preach, may the words of, may the, the meditations of our hearts as we receive them be pleasing in your sight. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Genesis 3 opens with the the beginning of our undoing. And it says that the, the beginning of that loss coincides with the appearance of a serpent in the garden that God created, who in his own sort of slippery and subtle way initiates an attack on identity. Look with me at verses 1 through 6. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty, You will not certainly die, said the serpent to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. The first step here in the loss of our identity is, in fact, a loss of God's identity. Throughout this series, we've we've said that the, the nature of who we are is rooted, it rests in the character, in the creative goodness of God. Right? Our identities are created identities that come from Him. And so we've said again and again that if we want to know ourselves deeply, we need to know God deeply. Walter Brueggemann, one of the the sort of uh, most well-known American Old Testament scholars today, He argues that in the Old Testament, humanity, to to be a human being, he says, is conceived almost entirely of what it means to be in relationship with God. You can't understand what a human being is in the Hebrew world unless you understand who God is, Brueggemann argues. And so the fastest way then for us to lose our identity is by losing sight of who God is, by distorting our perception of him. And that is, it seems, precisely the serpent's plan of attack here, in verses 1 through 6. His opening attack is not actually on Eve, it's on the character and the nature of God. And we see that the first little subtle dig that he makes comes in the name that he chooses to use for God. Throughout this part of Genesis, chapters 2 and 3, the the narrator, the author of scripture refers to God by a a sort of personalized title, Yahweh Elohim, or in the the English translation, the Lord God. It's it's specific, it's personal, it identifies who God is, uses the name that he gives Moses to use of him later in Exodus. Exodus. But interestingly enough, when the serpent chooses to speak about God here, he decides to shorten that name just a little bit. And he adopts a more generic, a less personal title. He just calls him Elohim, a god. A little downgrade in God's identity. So he chooses a a less personal name for God, and then we see, as the passage continues, the serpent also starts to slip extra words into God's mouth. He makes little attributions to God's character. And he does that by sort of reviewing or retelling what happened back in Genesis 2. When God sort of describes the garden to Adam and Eve, and he sets boundaries there about which trees they may eat of and which they may not We see in verse 1, the serpent says, did God really say? In verse 4, he says, you won't actually die if you disobey him. He gets the woman to begin to, to just change the story just enough that God is gradually recast As not the the creator, not the the good author and giver of life, the one who made her in his own image. But gradually in these verses God begins to sound like a rival, right? Who stands in the way of, of a greater human freedom, a greater possession, a greater sense of identity and self. And what the serpent is ultimately driving toward comes in verse 5. Where he invites Eve to consider a kind of identity exchange. He says, what, what would happen if you took your created identity, this, this identity as a person made in the image of God, and instead become more like a creator? Why not become like God himself? John Calvin, in his commentary on these chapters, says that what is essentially promised to Eve here is nothing short of divinity. Eve is being promised the opportunity to become God's equal. She's being given the opportunity, it seems, to become self-made, self-created. I wonder where you and I experience these subtle distortions in our world today. Because what's taking place here are these little departures away from what God creates as good, what God calls good, what God gives as good. And instead, we devalue. We consider, perhaps, insufficient. When we take what God has given as good and sufficient and blessed and we neglect it, we devalue it, we doubt its goodness, particularly as it pertains to who we are, right? it seems like it gives rise to this other desire, a desire that becomes malforming, forming destructive, and we see that desire Sort of taking expression in verse 6. When it says that Eve looks upon the fruit that God had set apart. The, the fruit that, that God said she was not to eat of. And says she began to desire it after she looked upon it. After she, she considered this opportunity to possess a new kind of wisdom. And she took the fruit for her own. And in that act, I think she is partaking of more than just fruit. She is consuming a new image. She's consuming a new identity for herself. And her husband, Adam, follows suit soon thereafter. In doing so, she's also redirecting her worship. She's choosing to direct her desire to something that God had made rather than God himself as maker. What she desires is the power to define who she is. Not to worship who she has been given to be. And in that moment we see human identity begins to unravel. The first signs of that happen in verse 7 and following. It says, Then the eyes of both of them, both Adam and Eve, their eyes were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. In the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. There is course a great tragedy to what is lost here in Genesis 3. But that tragedy is almost sort of compensated for or offset in the Hebrew by a pun, by almost a kind of joke in the text that plays on two nearly identical words. They look almost identical, they sound almost identical in Hebrew. Back in verse 1, we're told that the woman notices how crafty the serpent is. And the the word in Hebrew there is harom. And by following this craftiness, this advice of the serpent, what results is that Adam and Eve find themselves harom, or naked. So the, the joke in the Hebrew text, or the pun, suggests that While they hoped this forbidden fruit would make them shrewd, instead they find themselves nude. They find themselves embarrassed, exposed. They don't get what they were after. So much so that then in verse 8 it says that they hear the sound of the Lord God walking there in the garden. And with this awareness of their nakedness, they decide to hide. And they take the the trees and the plants that God had created as gifts, right? As, as sources of sustenance. And now they begin to use them as coverings. They use them as shields, in a way, to keep God from getting too close to them. And it says that fear at that moment enters into their relationship with God. Verse 10, Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Think what is being described here in those first moments after the fall is a loss of worship. In fact, that, that phrase that it says, the Lord God walked among them in the garden, that phrase is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, and it, it always refers to God's presence in a place of worship. When uh, the, the priests are described in Leviticus as, as worshipping at the tabernacle, it says the Lord God walked among them in that space. As, as they were created to know God in these places of, of intimacy, of proximity, of closeness to God and his presence... Now there's fear. Now there's a sense of shame. Now there's a loss of that closeness to him. Think back to Genesis 2 when God forms and fashions Adam from the dust. And he breathes upon his lips, face to face. He pours spirit and life into him. And now that same man is fearful, is hidden from God, is afraid to even look upon God for fear of of being fully exposed, that God would see what we have become. I think for most of us today, even in our acts of of sort of spiritual practice, in our acts of religiosity, when we come to church or, or when we pray, even in those spaces we struggle To really bring our full and our true selves before God, right? To acknowledge what we're feeling or what we're struggling through. We're fearful of what God might actually say or do if he saw us, if he looked upon us fully. There's a loss in that relationship of worship. Beginning in verse 16, though, we see that from the breakdown in their relationship with God, there is also a further loss in in these other areas of identity. Look as God addresses the, the repercussions in verses 16 through 19. To the woman, he said... Because of what's taken place, I will make or I will multiply your pains in childbearing. Make them very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. I think what we see here is all, again, of those things that God made good and created good about image-bearing in chapter 1 and 2. Like being known in a community. Like being fruitful with God in mission. Those things experience sort of an undoing here as well. And there's a a kind of inversion that's taken place. We've chosen to worship the created rather than the creator. Chose to define ourselves rather than receiving definition from our maker. And so all the blessings that God has given to us sort of become undone and and turn backwards in a sense. Verse 16 describes how the the image-bearing community, right, of man and woman, who were meant to to know one another and to encourage and to nurture one another as as image-bearers, that community becomes the site of a power struggle. As Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner summarizes, he says that the vow to love and cherish instead becomes one to desire and to dominate the other. They're set at odds with each other. And Adam and Eve here, by losing part of their own identity, Become deeply insecure. Right? They produce a strain on not just marriage relationships, but I think human relationships that we see ample evidence of in our own lives. Right? In the way we demonstrate codependencies, in the way we withdraw or remain aloof from others, and right? in our failure to, to know who we truly are in relationships. And also when we fail to actually make space or know how to even invite others that we want to love, to, to be truly themselves. Right? We experience the loss of this kind of community. But Genesis also says that the poison of, of the sin that's taken place here goes beyond just human relationships. And it actually impacts our relationship with creation itself. Last week we talked about how we were created to be rulers, right? The image bearers out into creation, to radar, to rule over creation by bearing God's image. And to do so in a way that was fruitful and multiplying and causing creation to flourish in its fullness. But look at what verses 17 through 19 describe now. There's an inversion for Eve. It says that instead of, of being blessed and, and fruitfully multiplying by, by bearing children, that now instead the, the pains of childbirth have been multiplied. Right? That, that call to be fruitful will have great suffering attached to it. So too, Adam's fruitfulness or his work in the garden has become attached to painful toil. And he's also told that the work that was intended to be flourishing and fruitful will sometimes instead yield only thorns and thistles. Right? We see in that, that the frustration of, of losing our sense of purpose and mission, of spending ourselves for things that, that don't turn out as they ought to. And so by the end of Genesis 3, we have this sense of a a crisis of identity, right? That even though we've been made in the image of God, even though we've been formed to know him in worship and in community and mission, that there's been a deep loss here, that Eden, along with our, our knowledge of God, has suffered an attack, and we've been exiled, I think it's proper then for us to think about Genesis 3 as a kind of lament. And I know most Sundays we would finish the message by by tying it all back, by having kind of a hopeful way forward. But this week I want to finish in a slightly different place. Because I think often we're tempted to, to push past this too quickly. to assume that we can quickly recover all that's been lost here. But I want to ask you to honestly think about these three areas of loss and apply these categories to your own life. Where has worship been difficult for you? Where is it It is a struggle for you to be known and seen by God, even right now. What about worship has become hard because of our loss of identity? Where have you experienced brokenness in community and in relationships? Where have there been relationships that have wounded the image of God in you rather than revealing the image of God to you? Maybe those have happened in your family. Maybe they've happened in your marriage. Maybe they've happened in your experiences in part of the church. Where, where has there been strife rather than, than healing and affirming? And thirdly, then, where has the work God has given you to do felt toilsome rather than fruitful? Where has it been it been by the, the sweat of your brow. Where's it, where it yielded things that were not intended, were not pleasant? Right, where where has it been difficult to be in mission with God? And I'd I'd ask you to reflect on those things and then consider offering them to the Lord this morning in the form of a lament, right? A prayerful acknowledgement that that this is the state of of my identity, the state of my world, the state of my human condition. And honestly confessing those and and bringing them before God. Because I think there's an opportunity God can enter into there to, to initiate healing and to initiate hope. But we need to bring those things to him first. Let's pray together. Lord, we bring our brokenness to you. We confess that we have hidden from you. We've hidden our own pain. We've hidden the questions we have. We've hidden the hurt we've done or the failures we've experienced. The fears that we have. Instead of bringing them to you, and allowing you to see us and to know us in a new way. Lord, we bring brokenness of our human bodies, those who are in need of healing, care today. We continue to pray for Lisa Haggerty's father We continue to pray for those impacted by COVID-19 in our own community, in our families. Lord, I pray for this community and the way we desire to be whole as a people, as a church, but we struggle to do that. We struggle to name and affirm who one another are in your image to make that possible, um, to call that forth, to gift and equip to bless one another in the way that you would have us. Lord, finally, we confess that too often we have heard the voice of the accuser, of the tempter, of the deceiver more clearly than we have heard your voice speaking who we are. we just ask that you would hear these confessions and you would begin the work of redeeming and releasing us from that bondage. Lord, begin the work of a recovery of identity in us. Lord, would you direct our minds and our hearts' desires now We pray these things, and as we continue in our worship of you this morning, in Jesus' name we pray.